What song did we just sing? And the words are, your face is all I seek. As a pastor, I've been doing uh, pastoral ministries for 40-some years, and about 40 years, and uh, <clears throat> actually 40-plus if you count some years in youth ministry and college ministry. One of my concerns is this, and that is that we sort of short-circuit what God wants to do. We settle for way less than he has for us. Is that fair? I think we sort of want God to bless our lives and hope he will do it. And don't hear what I'm not saying, but I want to say this clearly. God's not doesn't exist to bless our lives. God exists to mess up our lives because our lives are a mess. And so Jesus came to interrupt our lives, not to, not to bless them. And I think sometimes we evaluate God's desire for us by how well we think our lives are going. But I would encourage you to think through scripture and think how well the lives of those who pursued God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength went. Daniel. Lion's den. Furnace. Paul, I write these things to you, dear brothers and sisters, that your joy may be full. And where was he writing from? Prison. And so we tend to think that Christianity is about our idea of what life should be about. And what we talked about last week is that Jesus invited us to follow him. Where? To the cross first to the cross. Jesus came to give us life, but in giving his life, we have to lose our lives. We have to die in order to live resurrected life. And I don't think we talk about that enough. God isn't that interested in Doug Weber's super life. He's interested in his life developed in me through his Holy Spirit. Yes, no? Yes, that's what Christianity is, and we tend to think it's something other than that. This morning, we're going to celebrate communion. I'll be explaining (coughs) how we're going to do that in a little while. But what we're talking about fits with the idea of communion. Uh, Let's pray as we start. Thank you, Lord, for the reality of Jesus in our lives. Thank you that you came to give us life and to give it abundantly, Father, Forgive us when we don't believe what you said about grace, mercy, transformation, love. If we understand what you say about who you are and who we are and what you've done on our behalf, then, Father, we will run to your arms as you run to embrace us. Thank you for that reality, I pray in Jesus' name. Last week, I gave you a couple of questions to answer, to think about. Do you remember what they were? Is Thank you. Is Jesus worth 
following. And the follow-up question to that was, why or why not? Because I think sometimes we have to answer, is he really worth following? And I mean, not half-heartedly. He's not interested in that. I mean, man, how many, you remember when you proposed to your wife? Please raise your hands here. I want you to have a good afternoon. Okay. So when you proposed to your wife, did you say to her, honey, I love you. I love you so much. I'm only going to have a girlfriend that I, that I go see once a month. Well, what would her response have been? Yeah, see ya. Good luck with that. I'm not interested. Why would our wives or our husbands, for that matter, not be interested in half-hearted allegiance or intimacy with us? Because half-hearted is no-hearted, isn't it? Okay, if you won't answer, at least shake your heads like, so I know you're still awake. Whatever you decide about the question of, is Jesus worth following, and then why or why not? Because a friend of mine who uh, teaches at Talbot Seminary says this, Doug, sometimes I think as believers, we're bad believers. And by that, I mean, he says, we don't believe for the right reasons. We don't really have, uh, know why we believe. We really haven't assessed our faith. And if we don't do that, when push comes to shove, we'll, we'll, will chuck it. You know why so many young people lose their faith when they go to college? They never had it. They had their parents' faith. And so while they're growing up, it's so important that they understand why they believe what they believe. Is this book true or isn't it? Why? And we have to come to a considered conclusion. If you're here <clears throat> and you aren't sure, then keep asking those questions and Till you decide. And at least be honest. Honest to God and honest with yourself. Lord, I don't know if you're really worth selling out to. I want to believe it, but I'm not sure yet. Or if you have decided that he is, then the question is, is he really worth really selling out to? Or if you decide no, then that's okay. That's your choice. God's not going to force himself on you. You know why people go to hell? Because if they don't want to spend time with God here, why would he force them to spend eternity with him? Because that's what eternity is, a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. That's all heaven is. So be honest. I'm also going to ask yourself to do a favor if you're here and you're not sure, if you're a young person or an older person, you're just not sure. I want you to read the Gospel of John. When I talk to people about Christ... I ask them to make a decision based on what he says, not on what I say. And so John 20, verses 30 and 31. Turn in your Bibles. If you're in the habit of marking in your Bible, put a check by this. I don't write in my Bible anymore because I found that when I go back, I read my notes, not his. (laughs) But I want you to, to mark this because when I try, when I'm sharing my faith with someone, I want them to interact with God's words, not mine. Is that fair? Because he's argued, he's harder to win an argument with. So John 20, 30 to 31, John gives us the reason for him writing his epistle, his gospel. Sorry, The other letters are his epistles, the gospel. In John 20, 30 to 31, it says this, Now Jesus did many other 
signs in the presence of the disciples, which aren't written in this book. But these are written. He strategically chose what he wrote in the Gospel of John so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Where does life come from? Him. Ask yourself, as you read the Gospel of John, and I have to tell you that almost everybody that I have asked to do this comes back with the same conclusion. Read the Gospel of John and say, did John prove his point? If he wrote to prove that Jesus is the Christ, read through the Gospel of John and say, is he? What other explanation is there for all of this stuff? And then make your decision that you will submit to him or not. We talk in our, you know, i got to say everything I know in three weeks, and that's hard. So I'm just throwing some stuff in here. This is free. In America, we talk about committing to Christ, don't we? Right? What kind of a word is commit? It's a self-centered word. Lynn and I had the privilege of going to a uh, Billy Graham Evangelism uh, Training Center up in Canada, and we had the privilege of hearing Cliff Barrows speak. He was blind, and they walked him out on the platform. It was one of the coolest times in my life. He had no notes. Couldn't read him because he was blind anyhow, and they just let him talk about God. And it was way over an hour. And it seemed like five minutes. The man oozed God. And he he talked about in England, they were doing a giant crusade and the cabbie was was a a believer. And he said, you Yanks, you're so (laughs) self-absorbed. And he said, you talk about committing yourselves to God like it's yours to do. Maybe you should use the word submit yourself to God because it's his doing. I've never forgotten that. I'm going to commit myself to God and I'm going to make myself godly. No, that won't work. Have any of you tried? Be done by tomorrow. But when we submit to him, then it's his work in us which leads us to what we're going to talk about today. If you weren't here last week, Remember, we're using an acrostic, of, which is illustrated by the three veins on an arrow. If you throw that slide up there, are those working? Okay, go to the next one. What's the target of being a disciple? And we suggested that it is being a disciple and making disciples. Jesus asked his, his disciples to do what? Follow him. And so... Our goal in life, our target, if we're going to stay on target for what God has designed us for, it's being a disciple and making disciples. Okay, go to the next one. That comes from Matthew 18, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. That's our subject for next week. Being a disciple and making disciples. And we talk about, next slide, accuracy, intimacy, and ministry. And we ask the question, how's your aim? Do any of you ever get off target spiritually? Okay, four of you don't, so you can uh, take a break. 
Do ever you, any of you, now be honest here because somebody's sitting next to you. Do any of you ever get off target in your marriage? <laughs> okay. Okay, you sat up front, bro. His wife raised her hand and he went like this. <laughs> Enjoy that ride home. What do you do when you get off target in your marriage? You tell your spouse how wrong they are. That works, right? What do you do? You assess where you're off target. Where did I mess up? What do I really want? I don't want to make them feel bad. Well, sometimes I do. But I I don't want to, I, I can't prove them wrong. What I have to do is assess myself and see where I've moved away from the priority of intimacy with my wife. Is that true or not? Husbands, nod your heads because your wives are all smiling. Yes, and the same thing is true with God. When we get off target, we have to assess. And so the first thing we talked about was accuracy, which we talked about last week. Next slide. Staying on target in ministry and life is the subject of this thing. Keep going. Accuracy, next one, intimacy and ministry, okay? And last week we talked about accurate understanding and accurate obedience, correct? Is it possible, remember the question we ended with, to act, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and not pursue accurate understanding of him and accurate obedience? Answer, no, <laughs> it's not. Because if we're not accurately pursuing God, we can pursue intimacy, but it's not the right God. That's spiritualism, right? If if we are going to serve in ministry, but we don't know who God is, we're going to be serving the wrong God or asking people to serve the wrong God. We have to know who God is. And we have to know who his son, Jesus Christ, is and what he has done. And when I talk about obedience, I want to make sure that we understand that it isn't living up to his commands on our strength. Jesus says, love your enemies. I'm reading a great book uh, on some of Dallas Willard's latest messages. If you've not read Dallas, he's one of my favorite authors. And he says this. You want to measure your spirituality? See if you spontaneously, naturally love your enemies. Because that's what God does. I tore that page out and now I'm reading another page. (laughs) Which in essence, if we're not willing to do what God says, we do in our Bibles. Often when I'm speaking, I have one of those cheap paperback Bibles... And I will say something and somebody will say, well, you know, but I don't believe that or I don't like that. And so I'll take the page and tear it out of the Bible. I'll say, where else do you want to edit this thing? And eventually we get down to John 3.16. (laughs) We tend to edit what we don't like in the Bible. And so we will not accurately know God, nor will we accurately obey him because we won't be intimately in love with him. What the Bible is a record of is who God is and his desired love and intimacy with us. Any of you 
I'm not going to ask you to say yes, but if you have any estranged children, I didn't say strange, I said estranged. <laughs> What's your greatest desire? To have your hearts back together. We had a daughter who was making horrible decisions for a while. And uh, we were waiting for a phone call that hopefully she would be in jail because we thought otherwise she'd be dead. Had our oldest grandson basically living with us for about three years. And every night went to bed heartsick. My wife more than I because she's much more gracious and loving and good-looking and smart. She picked me than I. You know the heartache of that? The parable, parable of the prodigal son is God's heart for wayward kids. His aching heart for us to come back into his brace. I don't know if you saw the Facebook meme this week. There were two little kids. They were cousins, and they hadn't hugged since COVID started. They had their masks off, and they took a step together, step towards each other. Then they turned and hugged, and it said, the first hug in three months. And those little kids could hardly stand up. They were weeping so hard. And it said, we didn't realize what we were taking from them in trying to protect them. That's what it's like when we don't enter into God's embrace of us and embrace him back. That's his desire. So that's our subject this morning. We're going to move into intimacy. And let me say this. Remember that as we move forward, go ahead and put the next slide up there. When we're talking about accuracy and intimacy and ministry, go ahead and run through the next couple of sequences. Accuracy always leads to ministry or intimacy. Intimacy always leads to ministry. Ministry always leads to, whoops, Accuracy always leads to intimacy. Intimacy always leads to ministry. Always, always, always. Because if it doesn't, it's not the real deal. And any one of those alone, which we focus on, will take us out of balance. Accuracy alone becomes intellectualism. I know this. I know this. I know this. I know people who can quote me all kinds of scripture and don't know God. They think they do, but there's no thump. There is no fruit of the Spirit, but they've studied the Scripture for years. Intimacy alone becomes spiritualism. Spiritualism is okay in America, by the way, just not pursuing Christ, which is why accuracy is so important. Ministry alone becomes legalism. Following Jesus is a life-transforming deal, our whole nature and character being changed. And so just like there are (coughs) two parts of the vein that we called accuracy, there are two parts of the vein that we call intimacy. Intimacy with God and intimacy with each other. And by the way, you can't have one without the other, no matter what we say. It's God who puts them together. Now, I got to tell you, this subject is rocking my world and has been for some time now because I'm all about accuracy and I'm all about ministry, but intimacy, I struggle. I'm one of those kind of guys that say, Linda, I told you I loved you at the altar. I'll let you know if it changes. That's not healthy. 
right? Intimacy. I, I grew up in a, a home that was as close to hell as I ever want to get. And so I shut down emotionally. And so for me to be emotionally intimate with my wife or with anybody or, or with God is a scary proposition for me. But if I don't, I'm missing out on what life really is. Does that make sense? So this subject for me is kind of peeling me back in a good way. If I was to ask you to define, we're going to talk about intimacy. If I was to ask you to define Christianity, what would you say? Okay, I'm deaf. The auditorium is big. You got to talk loud. Christ followers, okay? We're going to talk about accuracy. We're talking about instinct. Let me let me give you a succinct definition for Christianity, and it's a good one because it's Jesus's. <laughs> okay, so we'll take that one. There are a variety of descriptions. They'll talk about what we do or what we say. Jesus gave a very succinct definition that gets us to the heart of the issue, and he said this first to the religious leaders. Look at. In John 5:39. John 5:39, you search the scriptures. Go ahead and head through a couple of slides there. I think we have this one up there. Okay, last week we talked about accuracy. This week we're in intimacy in John 5:39. Good. Okay, John 5.39, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. Now, I want to caution us in conservative evangelical circles, this sometimes describes us. I used to tell the people in our church, if you go to more than two Bible studies a week, you might be in sin. And the reason is, We spend our time in Bible study, but we don't spend time with those who need to know the Lord. We hide from what God really is calling us to do, which we'll talk about next week, by searching the Scriptures. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these, the Scripture, that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me. I think that verse might be up there if you go through the next slide so they can read it on the thing. Nope, it's not up there. Sorry. You search the scriptures because you think in them, that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Where do you get life? Coming to Christ. You come to me, and I want you to get this image in your head of the prodigal son, you come to me and I will embrace you. And you will be allowed to embrace me. It's coming to Jesus that gives life. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and to give it more abundantly. We come to him to find life. Well, systematically and Significantly studying the scriptures, the religious leaders had missed the entire point. They didn't know Jesus. They knew about Jesus, but they did not know him. 
And that's the danger of sitting here. We can be enthralled with knowing about Jesus, but we may not really know him. The Bible has one intended purpose and only one, to draw us to God the Father through Jesus, his son. If it doesn't accomplish that in our lives, it doesn't accomplish anything. Jesus goes on later in the book of John to give a pretty succinct definition of eternal life. Listen to this, John chapter 17, verse 3. And if you don't underline anything in your Bible, underline this. This is eternal life. This is Jesus' definition. That they know you, he's praying to his Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Notice what Jesus, who might know a thing or two about eternal life, did not say it is. It's not knowing about God. It's actually knowing him. And that word is gnosko. It's, it's experiential. It's the same word that talks about men and women knowing each other as husbands and wives, in Genesis, before the choice to sin, Adam and Eve were described as naked and not ashamed. Now, i got to tell you, that's not just physical nakedness. It included physical nakedness, but they were <clears throat> totally exposed emotionally, physically, mentally, and spiritually. They had nothing to lose and nothing to hide from each other. And get this, from God. They stood toe-to-toe with God, totally exposed, toe-to-toe with each other, totally exposed, nothing to hide, nothing to prove, nothing to fear. That's intimacy, dear ones. Who knows the most about you? God, who's number two? Your spouse. (laughs) That was a nervous laugh, bro. And the truth is intimacy is making a life together and knowing you'll be together even though they know you. That's intimacy. Nothing to fear, nothing to lose, nothing to gain. It's intimacy and that's what God is offering us. That's knowing. Christianity isn't knowing about God. It's about knowing God experiencing him in all of his fullness and all of his personhood and being united with him by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Will you ever be bored with God? Not if you accurately are getting to know him. We're going to be there for all of eternity. (laughs) And I don't know if we wake up in the morning in heaven because I don't know if we sleep at night. Who knows? But every minute we're going to go, wow, I didn't know that about God. You're kidding me. (laughs) If only I'd have known that earlier. Now, here's the cool thing. We can. There's another great and complimentary definition of Christianity found in Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. 
Formerly, when you did not know God, Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. You were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, listen to this. Now that you know God, dash, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Did you catch that parenthetical statement in there? We talk about knowing God. What does God talk about? Knowing us. Knowing about somebody in this age of information is really easy. You can Google some famous person and find out all about them. Is that the same as knowing them? In a passage we talked about last week, Matthew 7, 21 to 23, there are those who come to the Lord on the day of judgment and they talk about their religious credentials and, and Jesus says, he will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. The significant thing in Christianity is not that we know God. It's that he knows us. I have an illustration I'm going to give you that brought this really home to me a few years ago. A very good friend of mine was the chaplain for the Seattle Seahawks. Now, if you don't like the Seahawks, get saved. But if you do, then... He was the Seattle Seahawks chaplain for uh, 20 years, and most of you know that the Seahawks used to go to Eastern Washington University in Cheney for their training camp. Well, my friend who was their chaplain, Carl, couldn't come over for six weeks, so he called me and said, Doug, would you do me a favor? And I said, well, that depends. And he said, would you consider um, being the, doing the Bible studies for the Seahawks while they're in Cheney? I said, well, let me pray about it and get back to you, like I, like I was going to say no, right? So we were on vacation, and I was praying about it, and my son said, what's to pray about? The answer is yes. <laughs> so I said, Carl, why are you asking me? And he said, just think of it. You've been doing college ministry for a long time, and he said, these are college kids that just signed for multi-millions of dollars. I said, uh-oh. So we began to do Bible studies with them and had a great time. And, and uh, so my son kind of periodically grew up in their locker room. He started real small, and he'd carry the pads of some of the players off the field into the locker room, and he was basically dragging them. They were bigger than he was, and then he grew up. Well, <clears throat> he got to know them, and they got to know him. And um, so my son was a pretty good athlete, and... And he got to know a guy by the name of Matt Hasselbeck and Trent Dilfer and some of those guys. If you're old, you know those names. And uh, so Matt and Trent would call my son and talk to him about his life and football and all that kind of stuff. And they said, we know your dad's a pastor, but some days you don't want to know so much about what you ask him, so call us. (laughs) And so as young men are sometimes want to do, he wanted to impress a girl. Give me a nod, man. You did or you wouldn't be here sitting with one. So there was this girl that he, he kind of wanted to impress, actually wanted to impress her roommate more than her, but that's another story. And, and so this girl really liked the Seahawks, and she was a big fan of Matt Hasselbeck. And, and so Cameron said, oh, I know Matt. What would you say? 
liar, liar, pants on fire. And so Cam goes, no, he's in my phone. I got him in my phone. And he looked it up, and he didn't have his name in his phone because he didn't want people to take his phone and dial Matt's number. So he says, right here, it's number eight. Press the phone, put it on speaker. And what came up was, hi, this is Matt. Can't get to the phone right now. Call me back. She goes, how do I know that's Matt Hasselbeck? And he said, well, if you knew him, you would know his voice. Yeah, some of you, John 10. So you would know his voice. And she said, I still don't believe you. He said, okay, let's go to practice this week. So there was a young girl in our church, and she wanted to get Matt's autograph. And so we went out, we stood by the fence, and I said, here, stand right here. As soon as Matt's done doing the interview after practice, he'll come over here, and we'll talk, and I'll get you his autograph. So we're standing there, and she gets the autograph. She's all Twitter-pated, and, and, uh, and so Matt looks at me and goes, where's Cam? And I said, I don't know. He's around here with some blonde. And they were in the back of the thing. And Matt looked up, and he's 6'4", 6'5". My son's about 6'3". And so over the crowd, he looks at my son, and he says, Cam, what's up? And the girl turned and said to him, you told me you knew Matt Hasselbeck. You didn't tell me Matt Hasselbeck knows you. You get the difference? So when we talk to people about knowing God, you know what they're looking for? People that God knows. People who are on a first-name basis. People who are sons and daughters of God. And this young lady knew the difference, and so did you. Because as soon as I said that line, you went, oh. That's what God wants people who intimately know him and quicker than you can put speed dial on your cell phone you have communication with him because he's ever present not just around us but in us in John 3 Jesus Nicodemus came to Jesus and said hey what do I have to do to see the kingdom of God and what did Jesus say you got to be born again. And this religious leader goes, my mom's not going to be happy about that. Really, what he's saying is, what are you talking about, born again? And when Jesus said born again, literally it translates life from above. you got to have life from above. you got to get a different kind of life. It's life from heaven. It's life from above. It's a life you don't know anything about, Nicodemus. You're, per- you're really religious. You, you know the Scriptures. But you know me, and I don't know you. You got to be born again, buddy. You got to have a whole new life. Salvation <coughs> is an encompassing term that involves an accurate understanding and accepting truth by faith. And here are some key tenets. Who are we? Who are you apart from Christ? We're people who are. Sinners, and that really means we're in desperate need of being saved from our sin and from ourselves. Secondly, we need to know who God is. He's holy and desperately desiring to save us from our sin and from ourselves. Many of us 
may be saved from our sins, but we're yet to be saved from ourselves. Because our own selves still control our everyday walk. What Jesus did on behalf, on our behalf in order for that to happen, the reality of who God is and what Jesus has done is different than any other religion. Most religions say, these are the teachings of the man who founded the religion. Write it in a book and you guys try and live up to them. Good luck with that. Christianity is Jesus saying, here's who you are, here's who I am, and here's what I've come to do to make you mine. You realize we won't need these when we get to heaven because we'll have him. This is to lead us to him. Throughout the entire Bible, the underlying theme is that God desires intimacy with his people. We're going to run out of time, and you're going to quit listening before I'm done talking. So here's an assignment for this week. Do you like assignments? You know what I did to my English class when they went like this? I buried them. I want you to read John. Sorry, man. I want you to read John 14 to 17 every day this week, if you have time. And I want you to ask what it is that Jesus is talking about Christianity. What's he saying? And I'm going to read right now just John 17, 20 to 21. But John 14 to 17 talks about intimacy with God. Jesus is praying to his father. It's what we call the high priestly prayer. And he says this. I don't ask for these only, his disciples, but I also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. So put your name in there. I don't ask only for my disciples here, God, but I also ask for Doug Weber. He's coming a few years down the road. That they all may be one. Just as you, Father, in me and I in you, they also may be one in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Do you get what Jesus is talking about? When you read John 14 to 17, here's what Christianity is. We have the same fellowship with God through the Son that Jesus has potentially. Now, don't throw anything at me. That's what he invites us to. We're not going to be gods. But he says, I pray, Father, that they will be in me and I in you, and they'll know what we have and who we are, and they will experience that. And then he goes on, which is the second half of the message, so I'm only halfway through. Quit looking at your watches. He says, I pray that they will have that same unity with each other that we have. Now, I know in Chihuahua, so the second half is intimacy with each other. But I know in Chihuahua there have never been disagreements in a church. John, chapter 14 through 17. Three chapters. Now, I know that's hard, man, so have your wife read to you. My church in North Idaho guys go, I've never read a book. I said, it's time to start. Okay? Thank you for asking. 
So what we just read in John 17, 20 and 21 says this. I pray that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that, here's the purpose statement. What's the purpose statement? So the world will believe you sent me. So what's the evidence of Jesus being God's son? Transform lies so that his kids live like he did and love each other like he loves us. You know why many people don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is? One of the number one reasons? Because we don't believe it, at least in our actions. By loving each other. That's the proof. And it's not just the proof to the world, it's the proof to us. Because if we have intimacy with God, intimacy with God inevitably flows out of our lives as intimacy with each other. Because we don't have to fight for our own rights. Remember what I said about Adam and Eve, naked, nothing to prove, nothing to lose. So Philippians 2 says, have this mind in you which was also in Christ. Consider others more important than yourself. My agenda really doesn't matter, people. His does. And I can count on him loving me and taking care of me. I don't have to do it for myself. You know why we don't get along? Why people in other churches sometimes don't get along? I'm trusting that it's COVID that has this spacing here. You know why it's, well, we don't get along in churches? We don't have the mind or heart of God. If we had God's heart or mind, we would invariably get along. Now, that doesn't mean we agree on everything. My wife and I don't agree on everything. I have to convince her she's wrong all the time. I'm going home with you. (laughs) Where was I? Oh. If I say I love God but don't love his other children. What does the word of God say? I'm a liar. So the world looks at us and says, you're lying, you don't know God, no matter what you say. So what I want you to understand is that we're talking about is this intimacy package, this loving intertwining of lives is all about the intertwining of God's life with ours and his life in others. So my life to you is the experience of God in you. I can't grow up in my faith alone. I need the body. You know why? Because I'll lie to myself. I need mirrors and brothers and sisters to tell me the truth. Do we love Christ in such a way that we exude the love of Christ with each other? Not because we should, but because 
It's who we've become. When Dallas Willard says the greatest test of maturity in your faith is if you spontaneously love your enemies. Can God really mean that? Can God transform a human heart so that that's the natural response of God in us? What? He did. And he does it, he did it to Saul and he does it to us all. If we let him. But if we don't let him, then are we really accurately saying, I love Jesus? The answer is no. He says it's not true. Is this the Christianity we have or is what we have? Point one. Point two. That was a great message, Pastor. But I still can't stand my neighbor. His dog pooped in my yard. That's kind of a city issue, not yours, man. I mean, that's enough to condemn a man to hell. Shouldn't love him. I have to tell you, I love the 4th of July. We were setting up fireworks last night, and my son, who's nuts, he's lighting these fireworks on the ground, and we have all 10, not 10, there were eight and eight, 16 grandkids, not all ours, but two families intermixed there, 16 grandkids. And it dawns on me as we're setting off the fireworks, there in the front row, the adults are behind him, so we have a wall of protection. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and my son sets his fireworks off, and because he doesn't always think a long ways ahead, he didn't support them, and it falls over, and here comes these, here come these fireworks ripping across the kids' heads and past ours. Well, that was fun. That was fun. I love the 4th of July, but, and we love independence. I mean, our country was born in rebellion. We love independence and freedom, and I love it too. But being a disciple of Jesus Christ is exactly the opposite of that. It is total dependence on him. We don't think anybody has the right to tell us what to do. God does. He made us and he bought us. So being a disciple is being totally dependent on him and being part of God's family means we are totally interdependent on each other. It's not just that we come a building and say, well, we'll tolerate them. I'll sit on the right side and they'll sit on the left because they wanted black carpet and I wanted pink. <laughs> Reminds me of a story I got to tell. A friend of mine was in ministry with me. He was totally blind, absolutely totally blind. And he left and we were going to paint his living room. And he said, I've always wanted polka dots in my living room because it doesn't bother me at all. So we painted his living room completely black with bright different colored polka dots. His wife was not happy. <laughs> and he knew what was going on, so he walked in and goes, that's gorgeous. It took a long time to paint over a black wall, I'm telling you. Being part of God's family means we are totally interdependent on each other, not just in this church, 
on our brothers and sisters around the world. Which leads us to the idea of what? Communion. Community in Christ. What we are going to celebrate here is what Jesus says, this do in remembrance of me. You celebrate his death until I come. We're going to read a passage of scripture about that. But what does this mean? That apart from Jesus, we have no shot at knowing God. And none of us has any more right to Jesus than anybody else. We all stand at the foot of the cross. Actually, we all kneel at the foot of the cross, desperate for God. And the reason we can love each other is they're just as desperate for God. You know anybody that doesn't deserve to go to heaven and deserves to go to hell? I know somebody pretty well. The guy I started the church with a number of years ago has this great phrase. I count only on the grace of God. And if I get to heaven and God says, you're going to hell, all I can say is, well, that's what I deserve. But his grace covers us and covers others. So as we approach communion, I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's in the context, by the way, the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, your worship services stink. That's a rough paraphrase. When you come together, you don't honor God at all. You're honoring yourselves and you have your own agenda. And so when you celebrate communion and you have these love feasts, when you come together as a family, they're dishonoring God because you're all thinking about yourself and doing your own thing. And then he says this in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That he died, he suffered, and he rose again. But it's not just that. That is significance, but it's who he was, where he came from. He left the throne room of heaven to die for you and me. Come on, people. As my friend says, if that doesn't light your fire, your wood's too wet. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For everyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment. On himself. That's why so many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. 
So as we face communion, being worthy of taking communion doesn't mean you're a member of a church. I'm not a member of this church. I don't know you folks. It doesn't mean that we have earned our salvation or that we had a certain number of quiet times this week. None of that is wrong, but it means that we are in right relationship with Christ. And so there, when he talks about unworthy, I think there are two or three groups of people. One, if you've never submitted to Christ, don't make a mockery of the death. That's what he's saying. You're playing pretend. You're you're taking communion, but you've never submitted to Christ. You're not all in, so don't don't pretend that it matters. What's the solution to that? Repent and submit. God, I, I need you. I'm desperate for you. I think the second group of people of those who are those who have walked away, and I know people who feel like, or even people in the church say, you willingly walked away from God. So did you this week when you got angry, when you were judgmental, when you treated your wife or husband with disdain, whatever. So what happens for those who have walked away? We're assessing accuracy and intimacy. And what if our, what if our walk with God has lost intimacy? What do you do? Thank you. Repent and return. Remember the story of the prodigal son? He goes, and I've got to tell you, his list of sins was impressive. He was good. Debauchery, sexual immorality, all those things that we say, ah, you knew better. Of course he knew better. And when he woke up in the pigsty and said, what am I doing? And he went home to his father's house. He said, I'm not worthy to be your son or your daughter. I'm not. And his dad said, I don't care. Kill the fatted calf. My son has returned. Woo! Now, the story really isn't about that son. It's about the other one (laughs) who was ticked because his father would let him back in. I deserve to be loved by you. He doesn't. And at the end of the story, the one, th- the one that's in doubt whether they know the father is the one who dutifully served him. If you're here and you've walked away from the Lord, he's standing here. <sighs> if you only knew how much I love you. There's a great song that my wife and I have started listening to. It's the God who stays. When we walk or run away, he's the God who stays waiting to embrace. So the solution for the one who has walked away is to do the same thing, repent and return. And then there's a group of us who maybe have grown cold. Revelation 2.4, he says to the church at Ephesus, ah, great church. Great church. I just have one issue. You've lost your first love. And first doesn't mean first chronologically. It means first in the sense of priority. Who you love most. You've gotten so interested in ministry that you've lost 
intimacy with me. You may be here today, and I have to tell you in my life, that's often my case. So busy serving God that I never take time to embrace him or be embraced by him. And it becomes hollow and empty. So as we celebrate communion, I'm going to pray, and uh, I, I really am faking this, so I have to ask you, I think what's going to happen is the deacons or somebody's going to dismiss you by rose. Is that right? And then you're going to come up here and the communion elements are here and you're going to take them both to your seats. And then I think your practices, you hold on to them until we all have them. And then we'll pray and, and you'll, we'll partake together because communion is participation together with our Father. It's community, right? Let me pray. Father, I I pray that you will somehow inflame our hearts and lives. That more than craving your word, which is important, we'll crave you because it's only your word that leads us to you. That's what matters. That we may miss your embrace. And realize that you miss ours. Like those two kids who hugged each other and they were cousins, so I know they have to fight. But when they embraced, they melted. May we know that embrace today as we celebrate what you've done for us. Who you are and what you desire for us. May we be overwhelmed with gratefulness, with love for you. And Father, inevitably with love for each other because you loved others in the same way that you loved us. Thank you for your body broken. Thank you for your bloodshed. May we never take it for granted and so be judged is making a mockery of it, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen.